All right, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We'll be in verses 47 through 75 this morning. Matthew 26, 47 through 75. A number of years ago, a few centuries ago actually, uh, John Bunyan wrote a work entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Today we're going to see Christ's grace, Jesus' grace for the chief of sinners. And what we'll see as we walk through this passage together is that there is more than enough grace in Christ for the worst sin in us. There's more than enough grace in Christ for the worst sin in us. In Matthew chapter 26, we begin reading in verse 47. Jesus has just completed his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat at the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. We'll stop there for now. The first four words in our English Bibles are, In the beginning, God. And the first thing that we find God doing is creating. And how is it that God creates? How is it that he creates the universe and creates humanity? He does it by speaking. In the beginning, God and God said, let there be light. And there was light. He brought all things into being by his word and he accomplishes his redemptive plans through his word. We find ourselves in this text in the middle of a much darker weekend than we've experienced the last couple of weeks. The darkest weekend in history. The Son of God is betrayed, tortured, mocked, and killed. Yet none of this happens by accident. None of this happens outside the plan or control of God. This happens because God spoke, because God said it would be so. God isn't the author of evil. Yet he sovereignly can use human sin for great good. He does this out of love for sinners, and yet he does it also to establish the complete reliability of his word. Why does Jesus die? Because the life 
death, and resurrection of the Son of God is the only way to rescue sinners from the penalty of their sin. But why else does Jesus die? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Why does Jesus die? Why does he die this way? Here Jesus gives us another answer so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. You see, God's word represents his kingly authority. And the king who rules over all things speaks with a sovereign word. What God says will happen, will happen. What God declares will be, will be. Judas, think about this, walked in to the Garden of Gethsemane as Christ wept and prayed to betray Jesus because God declared that it would be so. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so one thing we see here in the midst of all that God is doing is that his word will come to pass. It's not a word like our words that can change. It is an unchanging, unfailing, sovereign word. And the first thing we see in this moment is a trap. Now if I were the king, if I were the creator, I'd choose a different way to make my word, my will known. If I were the genius who could speak everything into being, I'd think of a different way maybe to do this. Because what we have here is a travesty. Jesus has been praying, weeping. His disciples have been sleeping, and he wakes them up with an ominous prediction. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then verse 47, while he's still speaking, in comes Judas. Matthew paints a picture to help us understand how dirty this moment is. Judas, verse 47, is one of the twelve. Now, Jesus has a good number of people who have bought into his ministry, but the twelve, they're the closest. They've walked where Jesus walked. They've eaten what Jesus has eaten. And then what sign does Judas choose to betray Jesus? A kiss. Now, this is the first century handshake. This is how they greet one another. And the epistles, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. A kiss on the cheek is a traditional way for a friend to greet a friend. Now, Judas could have tackled Jesus, but he doesn't. He calls him rabbi, ostensibly a sign of respect. But in doing this, he signals the end of their relationship. You see, in a relationship between disciples and teachers, disciples aren't permitted to greet their teacher first. By greeting Jesus first, he demonstrates he no longer considers him his rabbi. It's an insult, a breach of etiquette. Jesus responds by calling Judas what? Friend. Now it's obvious that Judas is no friend to Jesus. Matthew tends to use the term friend with irony. Judas ought to be Jesus' friend, but is anything but. Now, Judas isn't by himself. With him are a great crowd with swords and clubs. Verse 47 tells us they're from the chief priests and elders. They're official representatives of Jewish authority. It's corrupt law enforcement representing corrupt government. John's Gospel tells us there are also Roman soldiers here, along with these Jewish soldiers. 
The word he uses is band or cohort, which is one-tenth of a legion. That's 600 soldiers. So you got Jesus praying with a few disciples, and you've got hundreds of people coming to bind him. Jesus challenges their tactics in verse 55. I mean, I was in the temple day after day teaching, and you didn't come get me there. Why not? Matthew has already told us the answer. They fear the crowds. So the money they paid Judas was for information about how to take Jesus when he's away from the crowds. It's dark, middle of the night, so in a culture without flashlights or photo ID, Judas has to identify Jesus with a kiss. Now, there is some resistance. Fortunately, the heroic Peter is here. Peter, brash, brave, impetuous, the leader of the disciples, whips out his sword and cuts off an ear. Now, either Peter is the most accurate swordsman who's ever lived, or the most blundering, because it takes some remarkable skill to slice off an ear. The sword that Peter uses is called a machaira, the short sword used for close hand-to-hand combat. It's sort of the uh, first century concealed weapons permit weapon, the one you could hide under your cloak. Now Matthew and Mark don't tell us it's Peter, but John tells us his name and he also tells us the name of a servant. His name is Malchus. So Peter responds to this unjust situation with violence. It's an extremely emotionally charged moment. Betrayal, mob attack. I mean, this blow that he strikes is one you couldn't do again if you tried. Slicing off someone's ear without striking their shoulder or their head. The idea that you could slice off an ear means that it's probably a freak accident. So what does Jesus do? tells Peter to put his sword away. And Luke tells us that Jesus also hears, heals the servant's ear. So one of these people who's binding him, he's healed. His revolution, he tells us, is a gospel of peace, not of the sword. But things get worse. Peter, for a moment, stands up and fights. But after this brief moment of courage, the courage of all the disciples fails. One burst of adrenaline, and then they all left him and fled, verse 56. One moment, Jesus is surrounded by friends. And in the blink of an eye, they're gone. Now, Judas' betrayal is magnified by what happens next. Once he turns Jesus in, the disciples fall like flies. You see, Peter's adrenaline, his self-confidence, isn't enough to help him in this moment. Determination can't defeat our worst enemies. I can remember as a kid, I had the, I guess, privilege, I don't know, I was the oldest uh, brother in my family. So I could poke and pick at younger siblings without really fearing for personal safety. And I can remember a time or two. Uh, my brother, who's four years younger than I, him coming at me, me just holding him away and laughing at him because he couldn't get me. He was so mad, couldn't reach me. We picture ourselves in a world where we're like that. We can kind of hold evil at arm's length, deal with it ourselves. Yet, brothers and sisters, we face an adversary far too powerful 
for us to deal with on our own. Imagine this morning that you walked out the door and outside this door crouched a full-grown male lion sharpening his claws on the sidewalk. What would you do? Would you walk mindlessly by this beast? Or would you at least pause and consider the wisdom of walking by him? He looks a little bit hungry. Are you sure you want to walk this way? Because these are the very terms that Scripture uses to describe our adversary. Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and we walk by this beast mindlessly, failing to consider the danger to our souls. But even worse than this, we all live with Judas as well. Our flesh, our old nature seeking to betray us. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. For I do not do the good I want, he says, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who does it, but the sin who dwells within me. So if you take this remarkably powerful enemy outside, and you've got this traitor inside the camp, we're doomed. You don't have to be too bright to realize we are not up to this task. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need the Lion of Judah to intervene on our behalf. Because the foe is too powerful. And there's someone within us seeking to betray us. This is why the Presbyterian evangelist John Wilbur Chapman wrote these words. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Friends may fail me. Traitors. Foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. And yet we've said in all of this darkness, God's word will go forward. Why do these things happen? Why does Judas betray Jesus? Why does Peter deny Jesus? Why do the disciples flee that the scriptures should be fulfilled? It's so important that Jesus says it twice. He asks the question in verse 54 and answers it in verse 56. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You see, there's not a single word of all God's promises that fails to come to pass. God's word is completely reliable. Jesus takes this moment in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all this evil, and points us to this truth. God's word never fails. It never has and it never will. The mob isn't here because Jesus has lost control of his disciples and he's a helpless victim. This mob and these soldiers are here because God said they would do this. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus will be taken on this day, not merely because Judas and the high priest want to do it, but because God said it would happen this way. You see, even in the darkest moments of history, when we cannot see the hand of God at work, God is working in every circumstance, bringing about good, even though our intentions may be evil. Bringing about light even in the midst of darkness. Bringing out about his redemptive purposes even through the evil deeds of an unruly mob. It's another version of what Joseph said to his brothers. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. 
Now, the difficulty is the events of today aren't written in God's word in the same clarity as these moments. But the same God who reigns over every circumstance, even as his son goes to die, reigns over our lives today. The heinous, unjust death of a man in the street The wanton destruction of property at the hands of lawless people, God still reigns. The senseless, heartless murderer of a courageous law officer defending the property and rights of citizens, God still reigns. So how do we reconcile these things in our mind? First, God reigns over all things, but it doesn't resolve, uh, absolve us of our responsibility. God still holds us all responsible for our choices. Judas, he'll be condemned. The Jews are confronted with their sin. Peter calls them out in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus, delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. God is always working, always ruling. But sometimes his good purposes are things we can't see. The disciples in this moment no doubt think, God, you're making a colossal mistake. There goes our leader. Yet the failure of this moment is followed by resurrection, deliverance. So we trust God's word today. We pray for and pursue peace and justice while trusting that God is good. That he is working in ways that our human minds can't comprehend. So we move from God's sovereign word. His word will come to pass to corrupt authority. Let's begin reading in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? at this point, Jesus is led to the first of several hearings he's going to endure throughout the night. Broadly speaking, there are two trials here, one Jewish and one Roman. But each trial has a series of hearings within it. And they're all orchestrated to get to one point, execution. They're seeking to kill Jesus. The ruling council in Israel, the Sanhedrin, the group trying Jesus here, doesn't have the authority to pronounce capital punishment. So they need Rome's help to get this done. 
And so what we find here is a kangaroo court. Now, kangaroo court is uh, the, the idea, it comes from frontier days in America where judges would travel from city to city or town to town on the frontier. And they would hop, kind of like a kangaroo, bounce from place to place. And they weren't really going there to pronounce justice. They were just executing people to try to get it done because they had a lot of towns to visit. And so kangaroos just like, we're here, let's get it done, let's get it done. And so the whole process here is a sham. I mean, it's not intended to produce justice. Cases involving capital punishment were forbidden from being tried at night. They're required to take place over a period of at least two days. But the Jewish leaders have already decided that Jesus deserves to die. There's no need for true justice. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says of this passage that the breaches in law are so numerous as to be unbelievable. In other words, the number of actual injustices here are kind of beyond imagining. The first trial takes place at Caiaphas' house. Now, depending on how you count Jesus' appearances this night, there are something like five different trials, five different hearings in two different trials. Now, we quickly know that this is rigged because verse 59 tells us they're seeking false testimony against him. But even then, they couldn't find enough false evidence to convict him. Until one person remembers Jesus' words from John 2, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. After this accusation, Jesus remains silent. Then, verse 63, the high priest says again, tell us if you are the Christ. Earlier, this same evening, Judas asked Jesus, will I betray you? Jesus said, you said it. Here, the high priest asks, are you the Christ? Jesus says the exact same words, you said it. There's this moment of truth in the midst of all of this. Are you the Christ? Ironically, Jesus doesn't even have to say who he is. The high priest says it for him. Faithless, lying Caiaphas. Then in verse 64, Jesus ups the ante. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming. He uses his favorite title for himself to say that the next time they see him, it'll be quite different than on this day. On this day, the Jews are acting as judges. On that day, they will meet Jesus as king and judge. Well, this leads to condemnation. Caiaphas tears his robe and pronounces judgment, blasphemy. The torture begins. They spit in his face, strike him. Some say to him, prophesy to us, who struck you? Mark tells us that at this moment, Jesus is blindfolded as they begin to hit him. Tell us who hit you. We live in a day, not unlike this day, where lawlessness goes and yet Christ reigns. The Jews here are breaking all kinds of laws to pronounce Jesus guilty. They go to extreme extent to prove that what he claimed is false. Jesus says he'll come in power. They blindfold him and ask him to demonstrate his power, to prophesy. They slap him, seemingly proving he has no power. Now, we don't know what every person here is thinking, but imagine that you are one of the people that Friday night you're hitting Jesus. Saturday, there's an earthquake. It goes pitch black. And you remember his words. 
the next time you see me, I'll be coming in power. You have to imagine that for someone, these words cross their mind. This dude said he'd come back and judge us. And holy cow, this just got scary. The edge of fear has to creep in that Jesus will return to judge. Yet in this moment, they're abusers. The disciples even end up being complicit, especially Peter. He's going to observe what happens and deny that he knows Jesus. Verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Before this moment, we left Peter in verse 58. He's following Jesus, kind of observing from a distance. Now we find him in verse 69. He's sitting outside in the courtyard. I don't know what life at your house is like. Some of you have young kids, some of you don't. But it's hard to eat a snack in privacy. I mean, the minute you hear that something open, it's like they come running from every corner of the house. Dad, what you got? It's hard to get a moment's peace, a moment of privacy. And you can imagine you're standing there and, I don't know, you're caught and uh, nothing. I mean, Peter's caught by a little girl. A little girl spots him and says, hey, don't you know Jesus? He runs in fear, denies. He walks a little bit further away and then it's another little girl. A little girl catches him. And these pesky servants, they're too observant. They don't even keep their opinions to themselves. First one asks Peter, do you know him? The second one is worse. She tells everyone else, hey, I think that's one. Peter denies and this time swears he doesn't know Jesus. In fact, he doesn't even deign to use Jesus' name. What does he say? I don't know the man. Apparently, the crowd talks it over, and they're like, yeah, that's, that's the dude. That's one of them. So the whole crowd comes up to Peter, verse 73. Certainly, you're one of them, for your accent betrays you. Now, Peter's from Walterboro. He's in Manhattan. They don't talk the same there. His accent is giving him away. Peter's terrified. He's watching what's happening to Jesus. What's happening to him? He's being spit on, beaten, pronounced guilty. Mob is angry. I mean, you see mob justice. It's not justice. They're happy to string someone else up right along with Jesus. So Peter really denies Jesus. He cursed himself and to swear, I don't know the man. Again, he won't even say his name. This same evening, 
He's professing, even if everyone else flees, I won't. Even if it means dying with you, Jesus. And now, he won't even say his name. Verse 74, conviction sets in immediately. Oh, Jesus. Jesus knew immediately the rooster crowed. Again, his word comes to pass. Oh, and at this moment, Peter begins to think clearly again. The rooster crows, and what happens next? Peter remembered. He remembered the saying of Jesus, and he went out and wept bitterly. Not long before, Jesus was weeping in the garden. But Peter slept. Now Peter weeps. This is the greatest failure in a life full of failure. And yet, in the midst of all of this darkness, in the midst of this weeping, there is a note of hope. Seven weeks later, just fast forward, seven weeks later, we find this same cowardly person in Jerusalem preaching boldly witnessing publicly to his faith in this one, in this Jesus. And after his sermon, he's treated much like Jesus was treated. Acts chapter 5, they called in the apostles and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. He's getting the same treatment that Jesus gets. What was his response on that day? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. The name he wouldn't say. A few weeks later, he has joy because he could suffer for the one he denied. And every day, they did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's his name. He remembers his name now. Peter abandons Jesus to torment and death. Yet Jesus never abandons Peter. No matter what your sin is, no matter how unworthy you feel, or how unworthy you are, there is more than enough grace in Christ for all the sin in you. We may abandon Jesus, but he never abandons us. All we must do is acknowledge our sin before him, confess our sin and our need of him, and ask him to save us. If you're here without Jesus, would you turn from your sin and ask him to save you? Now, for those of us who know Christ, don't think that, you know, just if you place your faith in Jesus Life's one long victory after that. That ain't how it works. Seven weeks later, Peter's preaching the gospel boldly, but this is not the last time Peter fails. Jerusalem, Pentecost, he's full of courage. But later, he's afraid of what the Jews might think of him, so he's a racist. He refuses to eat with Gentiles. God tells us this story in Galatians chapter 2. And in that chapter, it's Paul who rebukes Peter because he says, you're living out of step with the gospel. 
Peter is afraid. Again, he fails. But if we keep on reading, we come toward the end of our Bibles, the book of 1 Peter. It's a book that counsels Christians on how to stand strong in the midst of suffering. <laughs> and if anyone knows who, how to fail in suffering, it's Peter. But if anyone has experienced God's grace in suffering, it's Peter. You see, the strength of Peter's testimony is in part the strength of his failures. He's not writing as mountaintop Christian. He's writing as someone who's experienced the lowest of the low. But his failures don't crush him because he turns again and again and again to Jesus in repentance. See, the Christian life is a lifelong journey of repentance and faith. God changes our hearts, but then he keeps on changing them from one pick, one degree of glory to the next, just a little bit at a time. The Christian life is this lifelong journey. So mom, there's a chance this week you're going to fail again with your kids. You're going to lose it. You're going to express sinful frustration. There's a part of you that will feel crushed by that. Men, you're going to walk out of here and be faced with the same temptations you faced before you walked in here. And Monday may bring with it failure and discouragement. And when you're crushed under the weight of your guilt, that isn't the end of the story. Kids, when you find yourself sinning so badly, same way, you're going to want to ask, how can I keep doing the same stupid stuff? Remember Peter. And then remember Jesus. Peter does not succeed. But Jesus does and through jesus anyone can peter's life is a testimony to the terrible nature of our sin but ultimately the greatness of the grace of god in christ so let's take a moment now and respond to god's word in repentance and faith let's cry out to god that we can both know and experience the grace of God in our sin. Let's go to him now.